Thank you for joining the Home Church Podcast. For more information about Home Church, visit us at myhomechurch.org. What a beautiful morning. <laughs> so good to be with you guys. See some good friends here. It's awesome. Um, yeah, it is, a, uh, it is a remarkable, remarkable time right now to be living in. Um, for things that we began to share last week, I'm sure if you have any access to social media, I, I think you're aware of uh, some of the amazing things that we're, we're seeing happen uh, throughout this nation. Uh, we were talking last week of just some of these rumblings of God really, really moving, beginning in Asbury. Um, how, many of you, how many of you are aware of what has been taking place for the last week and a half in Asbury? Yeah, <laughs> it's really amazing. So it started a week and a half ago, uh, a normal chapel service, and it has yet to stop. And um, people have been streaming in from all over. And however you want to define it is, I'm, honestly, I don't, it's, it's irrelevant to me. I just want to, I don't want to stand on the outside and be critical. I want to put my heart into it and let what God's doing touch my heart and uh, when you're hungry, you'll, you'll eat. Even the bitter things become sweet. <laughs> and so uh, we just want to thrust our hearts in there and say, God, do it here. And, and, uh, and so you're seeing all these things begin to break out all over. And I think it's just a remarkable time. It really is to be living in. I think there's things that we've been praying about that we're, we're literally seeing. And I kind of, to be honest, it's kind of that Rhoda moment in, uh, in Acts where they prayed for Peter's release. Then Peter showed up. And everyone at the door said, it can't be Peter. It must be some ghost. There's no way. Even though that's what they were praying for, when what they prayed for happened, it's like, there's no way. There's an aspect where I'm like, wait, is this really happening, Lord? Um, everyone's been praying for things like this, and now it's taking place. And it is. And it is. And I just, I conceive, just in talking with other leaders, there's such a hope for God to break in at any moment. Stuff that we've talked about, but you just sense there's a faith that's deepening. And um, I see it here. I was so encouraged, and I don't say this by any means to, uh, to, to boast in, in, um, in, our, in our congregation, by any means, but just to, again, in, encourage and bring hunger. But we had an individual who was with us from Every Heart over the summer, the Michigan team. Uh, his name is Liam. Liam is at Asbury, and he actually wrote a comment on uh, what was happening there, and he says, this very much reminds me of the hunger and what I experienced when I was at home church this past summer. And it was really, really beautiful. So... Um, yeah, Lord, we're, we're, we want it. So it's a unique time. It really is. And I was reminded of uh, something a few years ago. The Lord was speaking to me from uh, Luke. I believe it's chapter 12. You don't need to turn there. Um, it's not really what we're, we're hitting on. But it was Luke 12, I think 54 to 56, where Jesus, he, uh, he essentially rebukes the crowds around him. And he, he calls them hypocrites. And the reason why is he says, because you can discern natural seasons, uh, but you are unable to discern the spiritual season that is upon you. And what he was talking about was the fact that the Messiah was, was with them. And so he, he said, you, you can look at the clouds and the wind directions, and you know what natural season is coming, but uh, he says you cannot interpret the time that you are in. And I, 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 I feel really stirred by that again, that as a people, we want to discern the hour that we're living in. And the word that, that Jesus uses there when he says you can't interpret the time uh, there's two words for Greek, uh, for time in the Greek. One is chronos, and the other one is kairos. And chronos is general time. It's time that's datable. It's, you can look at your watch and see what the chronos time is. That's where we get chronological from. You can look at a calendar. Um, in, in chronos time, all time is equal. But Jesus didn't use that word there. He used kairos, which is not general time. It's a unique appointed season. 
It's an appointed time. It's a divine season of which in it, there's this unique window of opportunity for something to happen that could not happen outside of it. <laughs> and that when there's a right response in a Kairos moment, it is cataclysmic in the best of ways. <laughs> uh, every, all time is equal in, in Kronos time, but not on God's calendar. You will actually know that there are certain hours in history that they're, they're different. That's not the same value. And and I, I, don't, I don't claim by any means I have a full understanding of what's happening, but I do feel, I think so many feel a stirring that this is a unique moment that requires a, a different type of response. When you're in those seasons, the same old um, just cannot go on any longer. God call, calls a different response, and with that, um, we, see, we see an impact that can extend well beyond an individual life, but history is shaped. And I feel like one of the things the Lord was showing me this week in a picture was a double action door which is a swinging door that can go both ways. And uh, I just was sitting on this. I felt like it represented some of the things that we're seeing in our nation over the last few years. On one side, there has definitely been uh, a swirling of immorality and just brokenness. I mean, call what you want, crisis, whatever, whatever word you want to use, but we've seen that. Yet at the same time, we're seeing rumblings of glory coming as well. And I feel like we're at this unique moment in history where there's this massive door on a hinge that's waiting to be swung either way. And what we find in, in the Bible and throughout church history is that God in those moments will often raise up a few men, a women, a company of people who will radically give everything to him in a way they never have and they become the hinge of history. They become the ones that swing the door into a move of God that changes everything. And I, I want to speak about being the hinge. <laughs> I, I want to be the people that swing the hinge. I want to at least be a part of that, that in this hour that, that God would would find a people so abandoned in this house. He's looking for a people whose hearts are so abandoned that he will pour his fire out. We're asking, look, we seek the Lord, but do you know that God is seeking people as well? <laughs> Second Chronicles 6, I think it's 16 verse 9, it says, the eyes of the Lord are searching to and fro. Can you imagine this? Yahweh, King of glory, he's searching right now, actively looking for someone to strengthen or a people to strengthen whose hearts are fully committed to him. Hearts fully committed, fully surrendered. There is, there is a strength that God brings and looks for that. There's something that happens when the eyes of a hungry heart meet the eyes of God who's seeking for that hungry heart. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> there is an explosion that takes place. So we say, Lord, do it. Do it here. So I want you to turn with me to Psalm 50, please. We'll start here. But I really, I want to just speaking to something the Lord's put on my heart right now for us. Uh, again, let, let it stir you individually, but I want us to see this from a, uh, uh, from a body. We're one as a, as, a, as a family, as a community. And I, this isn't just for a select few. I believe God is, is calling us as a house to be a hinge for this moment, to swing that door open. Uh, even if it may be just in this place, let it be so. But turn with me to Psalm, Psalm 50. So many thoughts brewing in my heart. I feel God in this, in this moment. I want to be really just vulnerable to you that I'm not speaking what we're sharing on. I'm not speaking as one who's in any way arrived. I feel the Lord is just, he's deeply, he's deeply confronting me and things in my life. And so I just, I've only, the only difference is I've been given a place this morning to share. But as a community, I, I'm right here in this with you guys. And uh, I just feel the Lord is, is speaking to things in my life saying, Andrew, the time of straddling in this way in your life, it's no more. 
It's just not an hour to be back and forth on certain things. But uh, I just feel God is really hitting the ambiguities of our life where we've kind of been in, but we've kind of been out on certain things. And God is saying, I want to remove that gray area. I just feel the Lord, what we're getting at is the Lord is thrusting us into the spirit of consecration. I feel a radical abandonment that God is inviting us into. And I want to encourage your heart that it's those who learn to really set themselves apart that make history. Not for themselves, but for the glory of God. And I get it. I get it. By the blood of Jesus, every single one of us in Christ, you have been set apart. You've been consecrated by his blood. But I also want to be clear that it can produce a lazy theology to think that once that happens, we just sit back. Actually, it's because, it's because the veil has been torn. It's because the Spirit of God, we're living the age of the Spirit. It's because of this that we who have been set apart, we now practice what we are positionally. There's no denying that every single person in Christ has been set apart, but there's something unique when an individual or a company of people begin to really practice and walk in a life that is radically devoted to Yahweh. <laughs> Everything changes. So Psalm 50. All I want to do is just use this psalm to, uh, to highlight this point of being a, a set-apart people and how God uses it. And Psalm 50, to be honest, is a pretty sobering psalm. It's really highlighting uh, Israel is in crisis. Their, their nation is in upheaval, kind of from the inside out, they're being shaken. And what you have is actually God's being pictured as a judge coming to this nation. And what he's doing is he's summoning heaven and earth to be a witness to his righteous verdict. So God's coming. <laughs> but then in the midst of this, God gives a beautiful remedy to what happens when a nation is spiraling out of control. Amen? There's a lot that we can, uh, I feel like, glean from. And I just want to highlight verse 5 to you. Verse 5 of Psalm 50. Here's the remedy. God says, Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Now certain translations word this different. It could be faithful ones, holy ones, godly ones, saints, or as it says in many other translations, consecrated ones. So in the midst of a nation shaking, the Lord says, Gather together to me the consecrated ones, the set-apart ones. And he says what he's about to do, but look at verse 15. This is what he invites the consecrated ones to do. Verse 15, he says, And call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. <laughs> so when a nation is being shaken, God's divine prescription is he says, Give me the set-apart ones. Give me the consecrated ones. Give me the ones who in a unique way, in the people of God, they have separated themselves in their unique devotion and pursuit of me. Give me those and have them begin to cry out and fast. And God says, I will hear them and I will deliver this nation. What we see is that in Israel, biblically, what we find is that Israel, when they were in their darkest, most turbulent times, the answer always is that God would raise up consecrated ones also by the name of Nazarites. There's a term by the name of Nazarite. God would raise up these unique individuals or a company of people that were so, uh, had so given their heart to God. And it was through these people that God would begin to shake the nation in a glorious way. And the Nazarites are seen in Old Testament. They're seen in New Testament. And I'll explain this more in a moment. But these were individuals who made vows of radical devotion to God. And as a result of their unique pursuing of God, their unique abandonment, I mean, they didn't just give up sinful things. They gave up even things that were permissible, but they were so consumed by God that they forfeited even legitimate pleasures of the world to run after God. And it was these individuals, because of the way they lived and pursued God, that God would raise up, and there was such an anointing on their life that the burning zeal that they had would often shake Israel out of complacency. They would be used as deliverers over Israel. 
They would often stem the tide of apostasy as Israel was moving away from God. God's gift was to raise up these few burning ones, these radiant ones, who then through their life would actually call back an entire nation to Him. So we say, Lord, do it in us. <laughs> do it in us, God. Make us the burning ones. Samson was a Nazarite. Samuel was a Nazarite. John the Baptist took a Nazarite vow. These were individuals that when you look at their life, what we'll see in a few minutes is that I want, I want you to make the connection that it was their unique setting apart to the Lord that there's a connection to the powerful preaching, prophecy, to, to, to the powerful demonstrations that came through their life. Joshua 3.5, Joshua said to the Israel before crossing the Jordan, he says, consecrate yourselves today for tomorrow God will do wonderful things among you. What does that mean? Signs and wonders he's talking about. In other words, scripturally what you find is that consecration always precedes manifestation. It always comes before demonstration. There's something about a life that, that, that is so fully running after God. It's like, it just draws on a unique favor. That's the only way I could put it. There's something about it. There's the glory rests on their life. And I just feel this is an hour where the Lord is inviting all of us. And, and please, like, walk with me in this. Because the call is not just to get up and start giving more from your own will. This thing that we're talking about today is not born out of the will of man. It's the grace of God that has to touch our hearts. That's my prayer this morning. It's not, hey, if you really want to go even harder, come up here. It's, if you, if you want more, we need grace to come and touch our lives. Like, the, the one that we're talking about, Je <laughs> Jesus invites us to lose everything. But we're not just talking about an ordinary man. Job 26 describes king of glory sitting on a throne in which he, he's so magnificent. He's so overwhelming that he actually in love has to hide creation from fully seeing him or they would be undone and overwhelmed. This is the Jesus that gives us the wise counsel and says, count everything rubbish and come after me. <laughs> that we would have the eyes of our heart open to see his worthiness. That we would run after him. So I feel the Lord is sounding an alarm. Sounding alarm in the spirit to raise up, if you would, the Nazarites. And let me be clear with, with that. I'm not calling people to literally grow your hair out, as we'll see. That's part of the vow. Um, let me actually be clear. It's in the New Covenant, too, in terms of after Jesus. Paul took a Nazarite vow for a season in Acts 18. I know of individuals today that, honestly, just getting around them, like, the glory gets really strong. And they have taken vows for a season where they have done these things. They refrain from the wine. They haven't touched their hair. It's not about external adjustments. It's a, that's a revelation of a heart. There's something that they want the Lord so deeply. So just be clear, though, I'm not literally inviting us into necessarily a Nazarite vow, although that's what God leads and go for. But what I am talking about is using Nazarite as a prophetic picture to call us into deeper consecration, deeper abandonment, deeper pursuit, deeper intimacy. Like whatever that looks like in your life, what is the Lord saying? Hey, I know this thing even may be permissible, but this is an hour to let this go. It's an hour to live for the eternal things. Yes? So let's go to number six. Please. Hallelujah. Number six. And what I want to do here, this is where we actually get the Nazarite vow. And again, I want to use this as a picture symbolically for a lifestyle of abandonment that God's calling us into. And then we'll just close. I'm going to share a few of those examples I just mentioned. We'll just see their life and see how God used them to stir our faith for this hour. You guys with me, tracking with me? All right, number six. 
Let's read the first two verses. This is the Nazarite vow, this set-apart people. Number six, verse one. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, some write, if anyone were to desire this, it's important, we'll come back to that, the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord. Stop right there. It'll go on to, there's three commitments of this vow, and I'll explain them in a moment. But the beginning part says that if anyone, any man or woman, desires and makes this special vow to become a Nazarite, what, what does that mean, Nazarite? It's actually, there's two different ways you can spell it in the Hebrew scriptures. It's a slight distinction in just one vowel, an A or an, or, or an I, but uh, they both are necessary to get a fuller, complete meaning of what it means to be a Nazarite. So one way is to spell it with an I, which the root word is Nazir, which means to be set apart for God, sanctified, consecrated to reflect God's glory. But the other way is with an A, which is Nazar. And that is, the, it's the same definition except it adds this, given authority over the land. So sometimes you'll see the scriptures spelled with, it, with an A, and when it has Nazar, what that means is it's really emphasizing that they also have unique authority over the land. To put it together, what does it mean to partake in this Nazarite vow? The Nazarite took a special vow of consecration to the Lord and as a result received a unique anointing from heaven that enabled him to exercise authority over the nation. It was authority and an anointing on their life that pulled, again, pulled on cold hearts, complacent hearts. It was an authority that broke oppression over little enemies of Israel. There was something unique that rested on their life, which was connected to what they offered up to God. What is the vow of a Nazarite? It was three things. Three things. Number one, they couldn't drink wine. Number two, they weren't allowed to cut their hair. And number three is they couldn't come in contact with the dead body. <laughs> Now, it's beyond where we're going this morning to understand why these things were probably selected out of so many things. But what is important to know is that, one, this could be seasonal or it could be lifetime. See, there are times where God will actually call you into unique seasons of abandonment. For example, like fasting and whatnot. In those moments, I encourage you to give yourself to God in that. But then there are also things where God will say, this thing will be for a lifetime. God's going to actually call you and certain one of you, certain ones this morning. There's things that he's going to realize, speak to you and say, this thing, this is, this is not just for a season. This is for good. Amen. Now, regardless of, uh, of getting into all the nuances of these three things, here's what I want you to see, though, is that each of those, the wine, the cutting of the hair, and the not coming in contact with dead bodies, what that really speaks to us today is that these things were not inherently sinful. They were actually all permissible things in that culture. In other words, wine, not drunkenness, but wine was a major part of their festivals and even celebrating the works of God. Your hair was certainly, you did not have to grow your hair out, and no touching of dead bodies. It was actually expected that you would bury your own dead. So the point is, is that for a Nazarite, they weren't just laying down necessarily sinful things. What they were doing is even the permissible things of culture, they were refraining from. This, guys, this totally blows up the paradigm in Christianity that says, what can I do? What's the least amount I can do and still be saved? <laughs> we're not after that. Everyone knows that. In this house, we're not after that. We're not after asking God, what's the least amount of boxes I can check and know that I'm still right with you? What we're after is, is hunger for the Lord, right. hunger for God. And one of the dangers, one of the challenges of this, because it's permissible things, is that a lot of times in my own life, I determine my level of abandonment to God based off of what I see others are allowed to do. And so God will come around and say, hey, I want you to, Andrew, I want you to give up this. I want you to give up that. And my first thing that I want to do is say, well, how come they can do that? 
But listen, there are things in your life that may be permissible for someone else, but it's not for you because it's directly connected to the call that God has in your life. Directly connected. And this is grace that God shows this. So if God says, hey, I know they can do this, but trust me, this will never get you to where I want to take you, we yield our heart to that. There may be things the Lord's putting on. I just feel he's already showing things. We're going to lay those things down this morning. We're going to ask for grace to come and touch our hearts this morning and give them up. Amen? Listen, someone on the outside, even as a believer, can look upon someone willfully giving up the permissible things of culture because they're so hungry for God. Someone can look at that and, and misinterpret it and say, someone who partakes as a Nazarite, a consecrated life, they're nothing more than a miserable legalist. <laughs> to the cold and the calloused, this type of pursuit can come off as miserable legalism. They're just dead, they're empty, and they're just trying to earn something that God's already given for them. My friends, that is not the case at all. This is love. This is pursuit. This is hunger. Actually, I would put it this way. Nazarites, they willfully forfeit legitimate pleasures of this world to experience and encounter the all-surpassing, all-consuming pleasure of God. They're, they're not forfeiting pleasure. Actually, they're pleasure seekers. <laughs> but what they're doing is they're getting rooted. They're, they're making a higher decision to live for the ultimate pleasure, which is God himself. And I can tell you this personally, and I know for many in this room, any time I've ever made a decision to respond to God saying, abandon this, let go of this, lay down this, I have never once did it on the other side said, man, do I regret that. I gave too much. Do never, never be afraid to love God too much. Never let anyone else who's not in that water down the, the burning fire that's in your heart. Let it, let it call them up. Never once will you lay down something for the Lord, give him more, and say, man, that was too much. I regret that. I wish I didn't. Actually, my own personal experience is the only thing I've regretted is that I waited so long. It's true. The only thing I ever said is, God, why did I put that off? Why, why did I get so consumed with this thing that honestly, it's not even that it's wrong, but it just fills time with something that's greater. Most of the time, it's not the sinful activities. It's the good and reasonable activities that dull the passion for God, that fill our heart with a toxin called apathy towards the things of God. The soul has almost only so much capacity for passion. The more channels we open it up to, the more it dulls us to God. Consecration is a gift to shut down everything we've opened up to have a heart reignited with fire again for God. If my heart is dull, it's usually one thing. I have opened myself up to so many other places. It's like I'm, I, you go out to a nice restaurant to have a steak, but all day you've snacked on junk food. <laughs> when you get to that place to eat that steak, you kind of feel, ah, I'm not hungry, but you're also not satisfied. You're also not, you say, man, I just feel kind of sick. This is what happens when we just eat of these lesser pleasures. The call to consecrate ourselves and to give ourselves like this is actually to be filled with the greatest pleasure of God. Thank you, Lord. God would break what the scriptures say is the carousing spirit. Have you ever read of that? Be careful, it will weigh down your heart. It says, carousing is the spirit of indulgence, the spirit of excess, the spirit of, of binging. <laughs> We're in an hour where there is so much binging. <laughs> I, I've been a part of that. I tell you what, I never feel restful on the other side of that. Never feel restful. And all it does is it neutralizes my passion for God. But this morning, the Lord invites us, come, come, in this hour, no, no straddling, come, lay our hearts bare and let God come and ignite a fire. God, put your hand on what are areas of our life the Lord's saying, I want you to consecrate. Now is the hour. Now is the time. 
What are things that the Lord wants to remove so that he can fill us with himself? Look at verse 2 again. Just to be clear that we're not speaking of some dead legalistic choice here. Verse 2, the Lord says, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite. Again, as I said before, this could also be translated, if anyone desires. What does that mean? That means that we're not being forced into the life of being set apart. God's not forcing anyone. He actually says this is a choice. He says, if you, anyone desire, let him come. God is issuing an invitation for the desperately hungry hearts this morning. And I, like I said before, I, I really want to be like this and right here with you guys because I feel the Lord inviting my own heart into this. If any man, if any woman desires this, this isn't for an elect few. This isn't some elite club. God says, if you're hungry, come. If, if you want to go deeper, come. If you, want to, if you want to experience deeper realms of separation with me, come. The Lord invites each and every one of us to do it. And if this, uh, if this desire feels at all a bit foreign to you, as it has in different seasons of my life, if at all you, the disposition of your heart feels so distant to what I'm talking about today, we're talking about going above and beyond to give him everything, and yet my heart is like, it just doesn't feel there. What do I do? Here's the good news. As I said before, this thing is not born of the will of man. This thing is not born of flesh. This thing is not first born with you. What we need is a divine escort called grace. It's grace that leads us into deeper realms of consecration. What we're actually asking is, God, I need grace. I want to give you more. I know that's where I should be. I, I, I sense the hour, Lord, but I need you to need you. <laughs> God, I'm asking for, for something to touch my life that would so reorient my pursuits, God, that I would once again say, I want you more than anything else. We can't, this can't just begin with us saying, you know what, we're going to try harder today. But it's an altar that's filled with hearts saying, God, the weakest cry I have is, this morning is, I need you to need you. God responds to that as well. Grace to open our hearts to God, I want to pursue you like I've never had before. And grace is dispensed and desire to be set apart is inflamed when we actually encounter God's desire for us to be set apart. <laughs> you, you and I will find a motivation to give more of ourselves to God when we recognize God wants more of you. It is encounters with the burning, jealous love of God that will actually motivate us and lead us to want to forfeit all for the sake of knowing him in deeper ways. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, and verse 6, it describes the love of Jesus this way. Jesus' love is stronger than death. <laughs> Say, what does that mean? It means death is all-encompassing. Death does not just take a part. Death, death takes everything. No matter, how many, no matter how much the parents sigh, no matter how much the, the spouse is sobbing, when one enters death, it has a firm grip on him. And what this is saying is Jesus' love is greater, stronger than death. In other words, he wants everything. His, his, his love is so, it's an all-consuming love. He says, I don't want just an activity. I don't just want a certain day. I'm not just looking for language. I want everything. Guys, that's good news. The fact that Jesus' love demands everything is not a, he's not this taskmaster. It's hopeful. His love is so strong. He'll be, he won't stay at a distance. Thank you, Lord, that he gets up in my business as an all-consuming fire that he demasks me, that he removes things, that I want to projecting images and say, but I know, my son, that's not where you're at, and I won't leave you there. I want to go deeper, and it's the more I encounter that burning, jealous love of God that I find a desire to want to give him more of myself. 
I almost feel like this morning, it's like, God, we need a baptism of your, of your jealous love. God, that as it touches us, we would, the, it's the only right response to give you everything in return, Lord. We need his love in this. <laughs> the, the life of consecration has to be rooted from encounters of his love for us. Why? Because if not, we will turn into that legalist that I said before. <laughs> if we don't, what will happen is we'll place too much emphasis on the external adjustments that we're making in our life. And meanwhile, our heart will be just as cold and calloused as ever. But we will boast in how much we fast or how much we do this. We have to have the love of God at the center of what we're doing so that all that we do is rooted in humility, grace, and it's really, it's not trying to earn something in the sense of, I'm not trying to make myself something, God, but I love you this much. I want to give you more. I want to go deeper with you. Um, if you could pull up Amos chapter 2. Hopefully you guys can see this. There's a few verses I want to share with you. Um, I'll, I'll just kind of run through these. And I don't mean this in a really cliche way. Like, this is not to be boastful. I feel like this can happen sometimes. But when, we, when you really start pursuing God this way, it really is a, it's an offensive life. It really is. To, to, to someone, because I've been on the other side. I'll just use it. When, when I come around someone who's really fiery and I'm in, not in that place, I get offended by their life. It's easy to come up with reasons to critique them. But really what it is is it's, there's something that their lifestyle is pulling on. It's something that's touching in my heart. And I, want, I just want to encourage you to never let yourself be dulled down because of that. So this is an amazing portion of scripture. Uh, Amos 2, 10 to 12. God is speaking. It says, Also it was I who brought you out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. So God says, I've taken you out of the wilderness. I brought you into the promised land. And what happened, although it's not said here, but what happened is Israel gave their hearts over to the gods of that land. And so what did God do? This is, this is, verse 11 is about the gift God gave them when they were in rebellion. Verse 11 says, And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel? So what happens is Israel falls into compromise. They start worshiping false gods. They turn their back on Yahweh who delivered them and brought them faithfully through. And God says, What did I do in response? As a gift, I raised up prophets and Nazarites for you. I raised up burning ones that, would, that were meant to actually pull you back to me. But look what they did, verse 12. But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. God gave them a gift, but rather than letting the gift tug on their cold heart, instead, they actually removed the one thing that separated the Nazarites. The very thing that made the Nazarites the burning ones or at least one of them, the wine, they actually caused them to participate in. And in doing so, we're able to dull their own convictions. This stuff happens all the time in very subtle ways. <laughs> Listen, if you made vows and commitments to God over certain things of not to do, do not let anyone talk you out of going backwards to another thing. That's not wisdom. <laughs> for whatever reason and whatever their motive may be. But you stay hungry for the Lord. So look at the end of number six. I think this is fascinating. You've got this whole uh, chapter that's de dedicated to the Nazarites. And then there's this small little section at the end of number six. And this will uh, kind of brings us back to where we started of how this unique set-apart people leads to a blessing for a nation. At the end of number six is what is known as Aaron's blessing. 
If you've ever heard this, Aaron's blessing is, it's like the blessing of all blessings. And in it, he was actually, he's called to bless Israel. And what he's going to be, let's just read it, verse 24, Aaron's blessing. This is over the whole nation. It says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. There was no greater blessing than God's face turning towards. That's why David, when he sinned, he said, Lord, do not turn your face from me. This is very deeply rooted in our understanding. The idea of God's face turning away was the worst thing that could happen. But God's face towards you was the greatest blessing for Yahweh to be towards you. So it says, Lord, make your face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Verse 26, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And all I want you to see is that the greatest blessing maybe ever given over the people of Israel is directly, I think, connected to a chapter about raising up Nazarites. <laughs> it's almost as if God is saying the blessing of God's face radiantly shining upon a nation and blessing the entire nation is being directly connected to the raising up of Nazarites. To, when there, if to say it this way, when there is a radiant few, it becomes a radiant nation. <laughs> This is Psalm 55. What's God's answer? Give me the consecrated ones. And through them, I'm going to restore even the wayward ones. Hallelujah. Let's look at just a few of these examples. 1 Samuel. And then we're going to pray. 1 Samuel. Don't have it. That's all right. Which one am I? All right. Well, I'll just explain it to you. 1 Samuel is where... Uh, Hannah cries out for a miraculous child. And in the end, what she's given is, is the baby Samuel. And what she says is, Lord, if you give me a child, I'll dedicate him to you. I'll make sure that no razor touches his head. What is she doing? She's dedicating Samuel as a Nazarite. And I want you to know that that was in an hour where the priesthood, the priesthood was corrupt. Eli's sons were wayward. It says that there was no word of the Lord anymore being released to Israel. God's not speaking anymore. Heavens were shut up, but there was one, a Nazarite, raised up, dedicated to God, that by the time he becomes a full-grown man, the word of the Lord is restored back to Israel. In fact, what's so amazing is that actually it says the word of Samuel came to Israel. He was so filled with the word of the Lord that it actually words it as the word of Samuel, even though it's the word of God. One individual set apart for God took an entire corrupt priesthood and nation that turned their back, and by the end, God is speaking and revealing and leading them once again. What would happen with an entire people? <laughs> what would have, and again, I'm not just saying to follow the Nazareth vow, but the areas that God puts his finger on, we say, okay, God, I'm going to lay this thing down. I'm going to lay this thing down. What would happen to, to Mastic Beach, to this island? Do you have Luke 1? All right, turn with me to Luke 1. We'll read it together. Verse four, uh, 14. This is John the Baptist, Luke 1, verse 14. And so this is when the angel Gabriel comes to his father. And he tells him that he's going to have a son with his wife Elizabeth. He'll be John the Baptist. Verse 14 of Luke 1, it says, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will, will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. So that's the indication we know that he was actually given to a Nazarite vow. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is all the connection to this life set apart. Even from his mother's womb. Verse 16, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. 
So John is raised up from, from the mother's womb, filled with the Holy Spirit, but there's this direct connection. Because of the way he lived so radically devoted to God, there was such, there was such an anointing on John's life that he was able, it says, to turn the, uh, uh, the children of Israel, turn the hearts of the most obstinate hardened hearts back to the Lord. John was so burning that John 5, verse 35 says, he was a burning and bright lamp in his generation. He was literally radiating the glory of God. <laughs> like the glory of the Lord is just emanating off of the life of John who set apart. I want you to know that it matters. Our small steps of righteousness really matter. Hosea 10, 12 says to sow in righteousness and God will rain, uh, to, to, to sow in that and God will rain down righteousness. Like what, when we start sowing in this, like it matters. It pulls on something from heaven. Because it's easy for to be like, what's the point, God? What's the point? I might as well just settle. But no, it matters. God does something through lives that are set apart like this. In Lamentations 4, 7, it says the Nazarites are the radiant ones. Of course they are. John was a radiant one, a burning one that shifted the entire trajectory of a generation. One man comes out of the wilderness burning on fire. In fact, they actually went out to the wilderness just to watch him burn. Just because the glory of the Lord was resting so strong on him. What does Jesus say? No, that's for John. No, Jesus says, if any man or woman desires to be set apart, come. Come. You can lay down as much as you want. You can have as much as we can go into the deepest realms we want. To one who is infinitely exhaustible, God says, come. Judges 5.2. This one's amazing. I did see you have this one. I'm going to have a talk with my wife after this. No, I'm kidding. She'll be like, yeah, well, do it yourself then. <laughs> <laughs> this, one, this, one's, this one's amazing and again this is one of the things you would never really see this uh, I thought this was fascinating so this is, this is with Deborah and uh, they go to war against um, uh, the Canaanites and by a every means the Canaanites are far superior in terms of sheer number of troops their weaponry is advanced they have superior chariots you name it obviously they get, Deborah's a judge they get victory and in chapter 5 there's a song that they sing that's a very, like, detailed song. It speaks about the leadership of the war, how they were mobilized, and ultimately the outcome. But look at verse 2. This is really fascinating. In most translations, like the ESV, it says this, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, and as a result, the people offered themselves willingly to go to battles, what it's saying, and they said, bless the Lord. And you read that and say, what does that have to do with the Nazarite? Well, what's amazing is that in a number of translations, that first part is worded very different. And I started digging into this, and there's so many commentaries and different books that actually confirm this is what was happening. Here's one translation, the ISV, words it this way. Rather than when the leaders took lead in Israel, it says, when hair grows long in Israel, when the people give themselves willingly, bless the Lord. <laughs> the Nelson Study Bible words it this way. The long-haired ones who let their hair loose. <laughs> and then when the people saw that, they willfully said, let's go to battle. And they said, bless the Lord. What's happening? What's happening here is that it's widely believed that it was Nazarites who were leading the Israelites, in this case and many other cases, into war. What often would happen, if you notice this in battle in the scriptures, is that before battle, one of the leaders would tell the soldiers, consecrate yourselves. And what a lot of them actually partook in for a temporary season was the Nazarite vow. And they would grow their hair out. Why did they do that? Because Israel knew when they went to battle, they weren't just fighting against another nation. It was a holy war. In other words, they knew that when they went to battle, what they were fighting with is not flesh against flesh, but it was Yahweh versus Baal, Yahweh versus Dagon. They knew that this was a holy war. There was a spiritual aspect at stake. Therefore, they would often put the Nazarites to go in with them. 
Because, so what's happening is the Nazarites, they would grow their hair out when it's time for battle. I just, they got to make a movie of this. <laughs> the long-haired ones would let their hair loose. And when they saw the Nazarites walk forward, they saw ones who were set apart. They saw ones burning for God, hungry for the righteousness of God. And it says when they saw this, what did they do? They willfully offered themselves up to go to battle. In other words, even in front of an outnumbered force, when they saw the long-haired ones, they were so filled with zeal to fight for God because they knew God's blessing was with them because of these few. Like, we're not fighting against flesh and blood. We all know that. But there are some deep spiritual things going on in this nation, and I believe this is a beautiful picture. It is symbolically the long-haired ones, the ones consecrated, the ones set apart, that as, as the body of Christ sees this, their hearts willfully run into a battle that on every front looks like they're outnumbered but God gives victory. Hallelujah. Last one, Judges 13. Of course, perhaps the most famous Nazarite, well-known, I should say, is Samson. Yeah, so it's, uh, verse 3. This is where the angel comes to Samson's uh, mother. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now listen carefully, verse 4. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be called a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. He shall be a deliverer. So Samson was a Nazarite. They needed to be delivered because of their rebellion. Rebellion brought them into bondage, but the power that rested on Samson was greater than the rebellion of Israel. So important. The power that rested on Samson was greater than the rebellion that rested on Israel. Now notice what this says, though, and I never knew this, is that verse 4, it says that when the angel came to the mother, the angel says to the mother, you are to have no wine or strong drink. And what I found is that many believe that she was also told to partake in a Nazarite vow before birthing the son. In other words, she birthed what she walked in. You, 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 can't, you can't birth something that you're not walking in. He says, you're going to birth a Nazarite that's going to radically set your people free. But in order for you to birth that, you too need to walk in that. Like gone are the days where there's a divorce between our language and our lifestyle. <laughs> and listen, if a whole community would say, God, we want to walk in this so that we birth disciples, sons and daughters of the faith, that in one generation... An entire like, move of Christianity looks radically different. People laying down their lives for the gospel. But we cannot birth that which we do not walk in ourselves. The so Lord says, what, if we do that, like I, I honestly believe it. I believe at the end of a generation, you can see a new generation coming up. That's, that's literally, they're, they're stepping in where we, where we like climax, where we peaked. Our ceiling is now their floor. But there's something important about Samson as well. Samson is also probably the greatest example of one who broke a vow that he made to God. And of course, you know the story on a very basic level. He's, he's ultimately seduced and he cuts his hair. Now you know why the hair was so significant because it was about the vow that he made before the Lord. It wasn't about the hair, but the vow. And he does that. And it says that he's overpowered by the Philistines and his eyes are gouged out. And he's put in a prison where he grinds away. And, and I just, I felt, I, honestly, I just felt the Lord speaking to my own heart, and I invite you into this before we open this altar to prayer, that is it possible that we were once in a season of radical abandonment, and then somewhere along the way, 
things that we were committed to where our heart was burning with fire, we stopped doing that. We found ourselves now cold. <laughs> we found ourselves, if you will, we've lost the spiritual fervor and strength like Samson that we once walked with. Like we've lost spiritual vision. We just, we've, we, we were once in a place where our hearts were so on fire. We, we were doing things that just fueled this thing. And then somewhere along the way, we stopped doing that. We broke those things that we did. And we find ourselves in a place where the heart is now calloused. But here's the good news. God restored Samson. It said his hair began to grow back. And you don't need to stay grinding away in the prison of shame and guilt. The blood of Jesus, the cross of Jesus offers forgiveness this morning. Like you can return to a place of abandonment if that's where you were at one point. And you said, man, there was a place where all I want to do is think about Jesus, tell people about Jesus. I don't know what's happened, but I've been filled with the good and leisure activities of life. But God, this morning, I want to lay these things down. I want to lay everything down that I'd be filled by you. And I believe God wants to do that this morning. Amen? I'm going to ask the worship team. For those, unless someone on the worship team wants to respond to the altar now, you can too. But for those of you who can, I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Even if we just have one, it'll be enough. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Before we just jump into a response, I just feel to take a moment to make room for a real connection with God right now, a real response in our heart. And you can even begin to ask him, what, what areas of his life, of your life, does, does he want to set apart in even deeper ways? you feel like you were once in a place of spiritual strength and fervor now it just feels like lost some vision something it just feels like it broke grace of God is ready to restore that abandonment restore that pursuit so I just ask God more than a nice close to a service. We're laying our hearts before your word and your presence and what you're inviting us into. God, we sense the hour that you have graced us to live in. And we desire to be the hinge that opens the door wide for the lost to come in, for the broken to be restored, for entire cities to be transformed for your glory. And so I ask, I ask God that this morning you would, you would thrust us into the spirit of consecration. And we ask as one body for grace. We ask for grace to come and touch us we ask for grace to come and sever ties, sever the tentacles, Lord, of things that have just got a grip on our, 
heart and our devotion and our time. God, we say we don't want them. Would you help us, Lord? Would you break things in our life, God? Would you give us grace to respond today, tonight, tomorrow morning, on the way to work? Would we steward, God, what you're about to do right now? And I ask, God, that you would bless, you would bless this altar, Lord, with an abundance of your presence, God. That every person that steps into it, Lord, would come into an encounter with you and would not leave the same. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Yeah, we're going to worship. For those you'd like to respond, I'm going to ask the, the prayer team just to hold on praying for anyone just yet. I really want this to be just a response to the Lord. So you can stay where you're at. You can come forward and engage God. And we'll have people come around and lay hands as we feel led. But the Bible says that there's times of refreshing that come from repentance. So as we turn to the Lord, times of refreshing. If there's anyone that needs to step away, we, we bless you guys. But for those of you who'd like to stay, yeah, this altar's open. We're so happy you could join us on the Home Church Podcast. We pray this week's message encourages you to behold the Lord Jesus and bring his kingdom wherever you go. You can visit us online at myhomechurch.org, subscribe to our YouTube channel, or follow us on social media. If you would like to give to this ministry, text the amount to 84321. Bless you.